The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. The scripture today is from Luke 24, verses 13 through 35. You can find it on page 885 or follow along on the screen above. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleophas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a mighty prophet, who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests rule, our priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. For we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women... of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it, not, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther. But they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them 
in the breaking of the bread. So we're almost finished with our series, which is called Cross and Crowns, about the Gospel of Luke. We've been in it since September, and we'll be finishing up actually next week. So if you guys have been around this whole time, you made it. Congratulations. We're almost there. Uh, so we're almost done. And, uh, and last week was Easter, and we were in the last half of chapter 23 of Luke and the beginning of chapter 24. And we, we saw how Easter, the truth of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how it changes everything. It changes absolutely everything. In fact, it changed everything We saw from last week how, first of all, we said how the resurrection of Jesus changed the entire world. Uh, Think about this. Not only has time been split between, they don't call it B.C. and A.D. anymore, but before Christ and after Christ, but the world has not been the same since he showed up and lived as a peasant carpenter for most of his life, ministered for about three years, did amazing things, was wrongfully accused betrayed by his own disciple, uh, put into like a kangaroo court with some authorities and sentenced to death and buried. And then three days later, as we see this morning, he was missing, he was gone. That, that That whole turn of events, that whole series of events changed the world. It has not been the same since then. Because one of the, one of the things that it changed is it changed the people involved. For every single person involved in the story around the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, it was the most, their involvement in it was the most important thing, the most crucial thing that any of them would do in their entire life. Pilate probably saw tons of criminals that he had to decide what to do with. Herod had, uh, King Agrippa had, uh, sorry, Herod had seen a number of things. This was just one more, in some ways, just one more accused criminal standing in front of the ruler. But it was the most important thing that they would do with their entire life. Nobody's life was the same post-Jesus' resurrection than before. He took skeptics and made them into believers. The centurion, a Roman-trained soldier, trained at execution, marveled as Jesus was dying and said, surely, there's something different about this guy. His disciples were not that great either. They were, they, they were followers, they were believers, but they were very weak believers. They had very weak faith. When Jesus was turned over, they went and hid. One of his very closest disciples, Peter, denied that he even knew him three times on the night that he was betrayed. But yet, post-resurrection, we see them standing up in, with bravery and courage declaring that Jesus Christ was the son of God who had been wrongfully accused and killed and had been raised again on the third day. They didn't like construct this story and like try to ramp it up into something it wasn't. We we see recorded in their own story that they were hiding after, even after his body was not found in the grave. He turned skeptics into believers. He turned doubters into believers. He turned weak people with weak faith into people who stood up strong and courageously to declare that he had indeed risen. His resurrection changed the world and it changed the people involved. And we talked lastly about how last week, how the resurrection can change 
you. The resurrection of Jesus can change you. But the question is, how does that happen? How does the fact, if you believe it or not, how does the fact that Jesus purportedly died, was buried, and resurrected on the third day to pay for your sins and so that you can have eternal life with him and the Father, how does that change you? And that's what we're going to see in the passage this morning. This is one of my absolute favorite stories in all of the scripture. I love it because immediately following the epic events, following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we have this like very intimate, very earthy, very real accounts of what happened to two really nondescript disciples of Jesus who were traveling the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus after all the stuff that had happened the past few days. So if you have your Bible, if you haven't already turned there, you can turn to Luke chapter 24, verse 13. This morning, in the time that we have, I I pray that we're going to travel the road from Jerusalem to Emmaus with these two disciples. And that as we do, we're going to see three things. We're going to see, first of all, that the resurrected Jesus shows us our dull hearts. Then we're going to see that the resurrected Jesus opens our eyes. And lastly, the resurrected Jesus causes us to reorient our lives. We're going to see that the resurrected Jesus shows us our dull hearts. The resurrected Jesus opens our eyes. And the resurrected Jesus causes us to reorient our lives. So we see in verses 13, that very day, two of them, that's two of the disciples who had heard now about the the events surrounding the missing body of Jesus in the tomb. Well, that's the way they thought about it. The women, this is interesting, as we talked last week about how like Jesus took the marginalized and brought them into his, like a, a place of favor with him. Women were, their testimony was not allowed in court at this time. And yet the first people Jesus appears to were women. I don't think that's any sort of coincidence that he shows a special favor and love to them in this very day. And they purported that they had seen that the body was missing, the, t- the stone was rolled away, and that angels had appeared to them and said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? Jesus is not here, he is risen. And they come back and they're all excited and they tell the 11 disciples, 11 apostles, and apostles, men of faith and valor who had walked with Jesus for three years and had heard his most powerful teaching, had seen him raise the dead, by the way, had seen him make blind eyes see, that seen him make the lame walk and had healed lepers, they said, you ladies are crazy and are doing something, I don't know what it is, and you need to go back home and get a little nap. And these guys, these two, we don't know if they're two guys, we'll say they're two guys, these two guys then, like after the crazy events of this past week, Jesus enters the city of Jerusalem a week before this, Last Sunday, amid cries of crowds saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He teaches, he comes into the, into the temple, he clears out the temple of all the people who are selling things in the temple, and he teaches in the temple day by day for this week, holding court, teaching and wowing people with his teaching. And now just a couple of days ago, one of his own disciples Whenever he's on the mountain praying in the garden, betrays him to Roman soldiers. 
And they come in and they arrest him. And his own leaders, the Jewish leaders, accuse him of blasphemy, saying that he needs to be killed. They take him to Pilate and say, give us this man's head. Pilate runs a kangaroo court and says, all right, that's fine. After he tries a couple times to get, you know, to not, to wash his hands of the whole matter. Then Jesus is killed. And Can you imagine this man that you've been following that you thought might be the deliverer coming to deliver your nation from the oppression of the Roman Empire, now, just a few days ago, welcomed in with cries of Hosanna into the city, and now he has been betrayed by one of your very own. He's been convicted, and he's been killed. A horrible death on the cross. And now he's been laid in a borrowed tomb. Can you imagine like how their mind must have been racing? Some of us have been through some sort of tragic events. A family member gets sick, an accident, or something. Or, or, or maybe you just, some of you, a few of you, are old enough to remember the morning of 9-11. And the crazy, as you're watching, it's sort of like, you can't, it's sort of in a haze, and you can't believe it's happening, and you're trying to figure out how all this works together, how does it all make sense? And you spend the rest of the day seeing the same footage over and over and over again, and you're just staring at it, trying to make sense of it. Or maybe you've been through a personal tragedy, and it happens, and you just sit around all day in the days with your family or friends, just wondering, like, what just happened? And you recount over and over and over again what just happened. And your mind is reeling, and you, after time, you're, you're physically and emotionally wrung out and exhausted, because you've run the gamut of emotions and you're trying to make sense of it and you don't know how it all works together. And so that's what the situation that these disciples are in. They finally decide after the women come and say, hey, not only has he been betrayed and killed and he's been in, put into a borrowed grave, but now his body's missing and we say he's risen from the dead. And you're like, man, this story could got, not get any worse or any crazier. So these two disciples decide, hey, we're just gonna go home. And home is about seven miles away from Jerusalem in the village of Emmaus. So the, the walk would have taken about two, two and a half to three hours depending on how fast they were going. Can you imagine how they must have felt as they're walking that long road home? They're probably thinking, I just can't wait to get home, grab a quick bite to eat, and lay down and try to forget that this ever happened. And on the way, they don't have anything else to talk about because what else would you talk about? They're rerunning over and over again. This is what happened. And as they're walking, a man comes up walking a little bit faster from, like, than they are from Jerusalem. And he overtakes them. He's walking and he decides to walk with them. And he says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And they say, you must be crazy. You just came from Jerusalem. I mean, the whole city's in an uproar. Do you not know what just happened? We're disciples of this man, Jesus. And this man, Jesus, he went about doing amazing, amazing things. He was a prophet, verses 19. He was a prophet 
a man who was mighty in deed and word before God and all the people and our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. And now these women have come in, verse 22, and they have amazed us. They went to the tomb and they said that his body isn't gone. Verse 24, and some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. And so then it just made sense. We doubted them. I added that part. I think this is interesting. Like, first of all, this whole account that they share with this man that was walking with them on this road, who asked them what's going on, even though he's coming from Jerusalem, and everybody who had heard, who was in Jerusalem, had heard about this. Which, by the way, is just if you're a skeptic, it's just one more proof of the truth of the resurrection that the entire city of Jerusalem heard that the tomb was empty and nobody came forward and said, hey, I saw somebody take him out of the grave that night, his body out of the grave, and I, or I heard somebody at the coffee shop talking about how they were a part of this and how they went and hid the body somewhere. Like, it's not really questioned in history that the tomb was empty and nobody knows what happened to the body. This is interesting, side note for you. First of all, it's interesting for me to see that as they're sharing the story with Jesus, that we see that these are disciples. These are people who had followed Jesus. They considered themselves students of his, devotees to him. And yet, when all of this happens, that Jesus had been, had been predicting I'm going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. He'd been saying this over and over again on the road to Jerusalem. He gets to Jerusalem, that's exactly what happens, and his own disciples doubt that this is actually what's happened. And if you are a believer in Christ, if you've been following Jesus for a day or a year or 10 years, and you ever deal with doubt, like you're in good company. They had walked with him and he had predicted that this is what's gonna happen and they doubted his own disciples. They had had, they had all the facts at their fingertips. They had Jesus' predictions. They had had the testimony of these women who had no reason to come back to them and tell them a crazy story and lie that they had been to the tomb and it was empty and an angel appeared to them and said that he has risen. They had his predictions, they had the testimony, and they had an empty tomb, and yet they still doubted. And I doubt. I don't know about you. There are some, and I'm not, like, and some, you guys might think, like, hey, you're not supposed to doubt. You're the one teaching this stuff. You're the one helping to plant this church. You're one of the leaders here. And I'll be honest, there are some mornings that I wake up or I'm on my way to work and I'm walking into work and and I'm wondering like, what the heck am I doing? Is all this just made up? They had the the prophecies, they had Jesus' prediction, they had the testimonies of the women, they had the empty tomb, and yet still they doubted. The second thing I think is interesting about this 
this situation as they're walking from the seven miles from Jerusalem to Emmaus and this man comes and overtakes them and they're telling about the story is that these are, from the account of the story, very ordinary people. Here's what's interesting about it. We only have one of their names even recorded, Cleopas. And we don't even know anything else about Cleopas except that he just happens to be mentioned in this account that Luke gives us of the story. The other disciple isn't even named. There's nothing spectacular about them. They're not people of great faith because Jesus, been, I mean, if they were people of great faith and it was reported that Jesus has risen from the dead, they would have stayed in Jerusalem to see him. But they give up and they start on the way home to their little country house and their little country village. And I think this is amazing that this man who overtakes them, who you've already been read the passage, you already know that he is Jesus resurrected, that Jesus meets them in the mundane. Jesus meets them in the ordinary. Jesus meets them as they're walking their normal path that they would have taken dozens of times from Jerusalem to their, their village. They didn't go seeking for him. They didn't go find him. He came and overtook them on the road in their mundane task and found them. And if you're in here and you're a believer in Jesus, isn't that kind of your history as well? Like, I don't know who you were before you met Jesus. But I know a number of you. And you weren't exactly like looking for him. You were out kind of running your own way, doing your own thing. And Jesus met you in the mundane. When you had no faith. When you had nothing that would attract him to yourself. He came and he found you. And he came and he found me. Just like he came and found these two disciples. These weak faithed disciples. He came and he met them in the mundane and then he walked with them. Isn't that interesting? Jesus didn't have to walk to Jerusalem to Emmaus. He's in his glorified body. He can just like Star Trek beam from Jerusalem to Emmaus if he wants to. He didn't have to walk on the ground with them. He could have floated along with them on a cloud. He could, have, he could have ridden a unicorn from Jerusalem to Emmaus to really show them who he was and razzle-dazzle them with his awesome resurrected power. But he, in a way that they didn't even recognize him yet, walked with them on that dusty road from Jerusalem to their home. Jesus walked with them, he met them in the mundane, and he met them in their unbelief. If you're a believer here this morning, isn't that the way that he met you, found you, in your unbelief? And if you're here this morning and you're not sure about this whole Jesus thing, every single person in this room has been there. Nobody's born into the Jesus thing. 
We all walk our own route, and he met us. All our routes are different. Some of you were a little bit crazier than my route was, but all our routes are different, and none, no one in here was born a Christian, but he met us on all our own individual paths and walked with us, and he met us in our unbelief. I think it's beautiful and interesting that on this momentous day, this, by the way, is still Easter. This is Jesus' resurrection day. He has not long from here, but before here, erupted from the grave, having been dead since Friday. And he takes the time, and I think this is beautiful. He takes the time to meet these two unbelieving, very normal people on a mundane task of walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And they say, so they say like, wow, the lady said this and we didn't believe them. And look at what Jesus says to them in verse 25. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones. Now, the wording there is interesting. It, it, he, it is what he says, oh, foolish ones, but it the translation of the English is hard to get. It, he's not saying, oh, you stupid, stupid people, which is what I would say. He, said, he calls them foolish, but it's almost endearing in the way that he says it to them. Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Remember, they had not just Jesus' own predictions, but they had had prophets who for hundreds of years who had predicted that the Messiah was going to come and he was going to take the sins of the nation of Israel, in fact, the whole world upon himself. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and, and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. How does Jesus respond to these people who are leaving Jerusalem and with full of unbelief and doubt? You know how he responds to them? He responds to them in truth, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe. And yet he also responds to them in love, in truth and in love. You know how we know it's love? Could Jesus could just have said, hey, if you guys don't believe me after I gave all the predictions and you're going to leave town the very morning that you heard that I had risen from the dead, go home to Emmaus and have fun with that. But he showed them love and that he followed them and spoke the truth to them in love. That's love. And how many of us have Jesus come to us in that way? There's a story I love. If you've never read any of the Narnia books by C.S. Lewis, you absolutely should read. I don't care how old you are. Children's books are not. You should read them, and you should read them over and over again. There's a story from the Voyage of the Dawn Treader with this, like, real, just, real, the kind of kid that you just love to hate, this guy named Eustace, and he's a pain in the royal backside the entire story. And he does this wrong thing, and he steals this bracelet that used to belong to a dragon. Boy, every time I start to tell these stories, it sounds ridiculous, but you should read the book. And he, and, he, and, he, and he turns into a dragon. 
and he gets tired of being a dragon, and he keeps trying to take this dragon skin off of him because he found out that he can shed his skin like a, like a dragon would, I guess. If a dragon were real, they would shed their skin just like a snake would. And he figures out he can shed his skin, so he, just, he, he, he tries to keep shedding these layers of skin so he can get back to himself. And every time he does it, it feels good to get that old, like, brittle skin off of him, but it's just, he's just, he's still a, a dragon with brand new skin. But then he meets Aslan, who's the Christ figure in the story. And Aslan is a lion. By the way, he's not a tame lion, but he is good. And Aslan comes up to him, and this, without giving the whole detail, which is just a beautiful interaction, Aslan tells him that he can take the skin off of him but that it's going to hurt. And he bears one of his giant lion talons and cuts Eustace. And this time it doesn't feel good. It hurts like the dickens. As Aslan pierces his hide deeper than he thought it could go and tears the hide down so that he can finally emerge from the lion skin, or from, the, from the dragon skin whole. And when Jesus comes to us with his truth in love and he tells us who we are apart from him, it hurts. Have you ever felt conviction like that where it just hurts? But when Jesus speaks the truth in love to your heart, it hurts in a sweet, beautiful way. Because you know that he's going deeper than anything ever has into your heart before to heal it. He rebukes their dull hearts. But it's a sweet pain. And he tells them again, I think this is beautiful, he tells them again, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them and all the scriptures, the things concerning himself, he repeats for them one more time what he had been telling them whenever he walked with them on earth. But this time, they hear it. And that's the way it is for a lot of us. You may have grown up in church. You may be new to church. You may have read the Bible over and over again. You may have read a lot of books. And it just never really pierces your heart until one day it goes deeper than it's gone before. Because Jesus speaks and breathes upon that scripture with his life. And he changes you. The resurrected Jesus shows us our dull hearts and the resurrected Jesus opens our eyes. I, this, this section is beautiful to me. It says that, it says that he began to tell, tell them or show them from the scripture how all of scripture had been teaching the things concerning himself. He showed them himself in the scripture. Now, a lot of us read the Bible in lots of different ways. Some of us read the Bible or hear the Bible or view the Bible as a storybook. It's an interesting storybook. 
It may not be historical. It maybe has some fables in there, but it's an interesting, cute storybook. It's sort of like Aesop's fables. Like there's some cool morals to get out of these stories. We view them sort of, I call it the felt mortification of the Bible. Anybody ever grow up in church and you had felt boards in your Sunday school room? And, and we, you show the like little, if you didn't grow up in, Sunday, in church and in Sunday school, then you missed this whole thing. We had this thing called felt board. It was like a, a, a we thought it was a dynamic way to tell the Bible. And you had a, a board that, had, that was covered with felt. We had these like paper cutouts showing Bible characters. It would have felt on the back of it so it would stick to the felt board. And you would show the Bible sort of like, here's Jonah and here's the whale. And he goes inside the whale. Then the whale spits him out. And there's like multimedia, like, wow, this is amazing. Now they have veggie tails. But this is what we had when we were, I was a kid. But usually when we use felt boards to tell Bible stories, it, we tell cute little moral stories from the, from the stories. And it's really, when we do that, we really miss the point. For some of us, we view the Bible as a, a book of morals. Like, it tells us, like, some, the way that we, sh- like, we shouldn't talk bad to people. We should be loving. We should turn the other cheek. We should give to the poor. Like, there's lots of good morals in there. For some of us, we view it as a rule book. And I know who you guys are. You're the one that before we break out the game board, you're looking at the rules to make sure, and you're reading them out loud to the rest of us at the table to make sure we understand all the rules. The whole, like, your little stuff that you do with Monopoly, those are house rules. Those aren't the real rules. You learned how to play Monopoly the wrong way growing up. This is how you play it. You don't have to go around once before you buy properties. You can buy it right off the bat. Like, whatever your house rules are, that's wrong because you're reading the rules. Because you're a rule follower. And you tend to use the Bible for your life and for the people around you as a rule book telling you what you should and should not do. In all those ways, viewing it as a storybook viewing it as a book of morals, viewing it as a book of rules. Is, however you view it, if you view it in that way, you and I are missing the point of the book. The point of the book is to show us who Jesus is. It's to show us who we are apart from him and our great, incredible, larger than you and I can imagine need for him to show us what, who he was and what he has done on our behalf and to show you him in his amazing beauty and glory. His beauty in that he gave up his life for you. That's a beautiful, heroic story and his glory in that the one who did that is the one who spun the universe into existence, the one who holds the star in their place, the one who thought up the hippopotamus and the giraffe, who thought up, for some reason, mosquitoes and, and imagined this whole world, like, that's the one who gave his life for you and for me. That's the point of the book, to show us Jesus, our great need for him, who he was and what he did on our behalf. Jesus showed them the purpose of Scripture was to show that he must suffer. That's our need for him and his great provision for us on our behalf. That you and I, by nature, are children of wrath, separated from God, our Father, the one who we were created for and the one who we were created by, the one who would constantly reject him and run our opposite, the other way as a rebel, and his great provision for us on our behalf. 
And then it said that he showed them that he, he said, was it not saying that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? That shows us his preeminence and his power, that Jesus is above all things. The Bible says that the world, this universe was created by him and through him and for him. It is to him. All our being is devoted or should be devoted to him. He is preeminent. He is powerful. He, he holds the power of the universe in the palm of his hand. And that, when he, that he entered into his glory also shows us that we have a promise of a redeemed future. Whatever it is that you fear about your future, whether it's that you could lose your job or lose your family or lose your, the life of your loved one or lose your own life, whatever it is that you fear about your future, the story that Jesus came and died and was buried and resurrected for you and for me gives us a promise of a redeemed future of hope and joy forever and ever and ever. Uh, to some of you, I'm fairly young, but to a lot of you, I'm one of the older guys. I'm gonna be 40 this year. And, and the older I get, the more I realize, like, life can just be sucky. Can I say that in church? Life can be sucky. There's really, like, there's, as beautiful as much of life is, life can be bad. And my body is, like, you guys know it looking at me, my body is decaying. <laughs> Some of you are in amazing physical shape, Braden. But that does not last forever. It is fleeting. None of us last forever. Our body starts to break down very quickly. And yet the fact that Jesus resurrected and he gives that resurrection life to his children gives us a great hope for a future. And then as Jesus tells them, he, listen, like, Again, you guys have to hear me share this. Can you imagine what it would be like to walk with Jesus as he opens the scripture and shows them it's all about him? Verse 28, so they drew near the village to which they were going, and he acted as if he were going further. But he urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. Stay with us. When they heard him opening the scripture to them, showing them who he was and what, he, what Christ was to do on their behalf, it caused them to want to know more. They had heard the scripture before this. They had heard Jesus teaching before this. They had been his disciples. They had the empty tomb. Now they even had, 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 them walk, had him walking with them on this path, and yet something happens to them whenever he opens the scripture and proclaims himself out of it that causes them to want to know more, and they ask him to stay. And as he says, this is so beautiful to me. Verse 30, so he went into, well, verse, in verse 29, so he went in to stay with them. In verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And 
if anyone in this room is a believer in Christ, you've had that moment. It may have felt like fireworks going off, or it may have been a very quiet moment that passed. C.S. Lewis, who wrote the, the Narnia books, he said that he got on the train a doubter, and he got off the train a Christian. He's not sure exactly where it happened, but he know that it happened. And for all of us, we've had that moment where he opened our eyes, and we saw him. He was there the whole time that we saw him. And all of a sudden, the, the previous part of our life that didn't make sense, all of a sudden made sense. All the sadness that we had been through. Think about for them, this moment at this table, as he breaks the bread, they think he's a stranger, and all of a sudden they see it's Jesus. All of a sudden, he disappears, and all of their life makes sense. All the events of the past few days make sense. All of the pain and sadness that they had been through, all of a sudden is worth it and makes sense to them because they've realized that who he is and what he has done for them and their connection to him as his children. Isn't that beautiful? And here's what Jesus used to open their eyes. He used the scripture and he breathed upon it so they would be able to understand it and hear it. And if you're here this morning, and wherever you are on your walk with Christ, you might not be a believer, you might be a new believer, you might be around 30 years. What you and I most need is to see who Jesus is and what he has done for us, to better and more deeply understand it so that we see him and the way that happens is through the scripture and through him breathing upon it. I pray we would make that our mission as a church this morning. How do we find life? Life that's satisfying, that resurrection life that we all long for? We find Jesus. And how do we find him? Through his word. Why and how do we read and study and apply scripture? So we can find Jesus. That's why on Sunday mornings we preach, I try not to go too long, but we preach a little bit longer than some people preach. And we work through books of the Bible. And then when we gather in community groups during the week, we we pray with each other, and, and we reopen the Bible, and we seek how do we apply this scripture that we've been in the past week to my life? Do you know why we do that? We're not trying to make you a more moral person or make sure that you're following the rules any better. We all want to see Jesus together. Lastly, and I'll be done. The resurrected Jesus shows us our dull hearts. The resurrected Jesus opens our eyes. And then the resurrected Jesus causes us to reorient our lives. I love this. Jesus meets these disciples right where they are. Just like for all of us in this room, he meets us right where we are, but he doesn't leave us there. 
it starts, and you might miss it in the passage without really paying attention, but in verse 30, it says, when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. This is before they recognize that he's Jesus. He's taking the role of authority in the house. It would be the head of the house who would sit at the table and take the bread and break it. And Jesus took the role as the head of the house in these disciples' household. And if Jesus, if you're going to be a disciple of his, if you're going to meet him, if you're going to follow him, if you're going to be a believer, there's only one seat for him in your house, and that's the seat of rule and authority. It's the seat of being head of your house and head of your life. He will take a position of prominence, or he will take no position at all. That's been one of the themes throughout this whole book of Luke. Secondly, we see that their hearts, not only did he take the position of authority, but it says that he vanished from their sight, verse 32, and they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? The picture of a burning heart shows us that there is a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not just an exterior belief that you happen to take into your mind, and I believe that he died and resurrected, and so now I must be a believer because I checked those boxes of belief on, but you have a change that happens in the very soul and very core of who you are. The Spirit of God breathes upon your soul and gives you life that once was death, and you may or may not feel a burning soul within you at that moment, but you will feel the effects of becoming a child of the burning heart. You will have some sort of assurance, some sort of taste of the reality of the beauty of Jesus. Jonathan Edwards, the theologian, said it, the difference between being a person who believes mentally the truth of Scripture or who Jesus is and becoming a believer is the difference in knowing that honey is sweet and tasting it for yourself. It's a spiritual taste that you would achieve inside your inner being that cannot be stolen from you. It's assurance of the truth. It's a sharing of the power of the resurrected, of the resurrected Jesus in your soul and in your life. And then lastly, we see they, Jesus took a position of prominence. Their hearts burned within them, so he reordered their lives around him. But then they were tired. They were, ready to, they were ready to turn in. It was not safe to travel the roads at dark. It was another two and a half, two-hour, three-hour journey back to Jerusalem. They've already walked already. It's dark. It's not safe. But that hour, whenever he appeared to them, and they said, did not our hearts burn within us? Verse 33, and they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11, and those who were with them gathered, and the 11 were saying, Jesus is risen indeed. He's appeared to Simon, and they said, we know. We saw him too. He came to our house. He broke the bread. We saw him. He disappeared. It's real. He's alive, and they shared with joy the truth of the resurrection. The thing that would happen from this moment on with these disciples and all the rest of believers throughout history is they would share with joy the truth of the resurrected Jesus with each other 
and they would share it with joy and boldness and love and humility to those who are outside. And that's what we're going to do here this morning. And the rest of our worship, in our communion, as we have a catered lunch, an indoor picnic today, as we play games, as I see some of you guys get like real like competitive over volleyball and cornhole and whatever that game is that you throw the rope, ladder ball. And, and what we're going to be enjoying together is we're going to be sharing the joy of the resurrected Jesus with each other. That's why we keep talking every week about the same thing. We talk about Jesus every week because we serve a resurrected Lord who has given us his resurrected life. And if you have not experienced that, you can experience that this morning. And I pray that you would. I pray you would find somebody to pray with you. I'm, I'll be up here. You can find somebody in the prayer area. You can grab somebody beside you and say, hey, I think this is the morning. Would you pray for me? And for the rest of us who are believers, we're going to enjoy together again the resurrection life that dwells within us, that, that we received through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And then as we leave here, we're going to leave with smiles on our face, even as some of us in the midst of pain and disappointment, as we go back to our mundane jobs that some of us love and some of us just don't love. But we're going to go with a smile because we're going to share the resurrected life of Jesus and the truth of that resurrection with the people around us, our friends, our family, and our neighbors. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.